2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupt in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that every man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. May have a seat. There are times when things that appear good or right, especially when they align with what we already want, what we're already looking for, what we already prefer. There are times when they appear good and right at first, but turn out to not be what they appear. Trivial examples, you go to a restaurant because it looks good, the food turns out to be terrible. You find a deal on something, but it's not quite like the real thing, it turns out to be junk, right? Everyone's bought a car that's, that was, ended up being a lemon. What about when it's not a trivial thing? What about when life and truth and eternity are on the line? In Bible college, I took a year of doctrine. You had to, to, to graduate, you had to take a two semesters of doctrine class. And my teacher was an interesting guy. He was certainly knowledgeable, far more knowledgeable than I was. I, I didn't have much depth or breadth of knowledge at all coming in. So I was eager to learn with... With only a, a little critical thought, I took in what he taught, and there were many good things there, but not all was as it seemed. Mixed into the orthodox doctrines, he introduced us to a particular theologian who was getting popular at that time. We won't talk about when that time was. It's been a few years. Though I was ignorant of what the teaching was. This theologian taught certain doctrines that were actually not in the flow of historic Christian faith. And in retrospect, this, this as well as certain behaviors maybe ought to have concerned discerning people, but I was just not that discerning. I just didn't, I just didn't know. But oftentimes, it's, that's how it is. Afterwards, something seems clear while in the midst of it, it's unclear. And so, what can you do? Sadly, a few years later, a few years after I had graduated, my old doctrine teacher, professor, quit his post at the college because he had renounced the faith. The God that he was following was not worth following. 
and the God of the Bible was undesirable to him. What are we to do when these sorts of things happen, when, when, when it seems so prevalent at times, and from people in places that initially seem so good? I want, I want to help you in this way to recognize the folly of fake godliness and to continue in the wisdom of true godliness, to recognize the folly of fake godliness and to, to continue in the wisdom of true godliness. I think this is what Paul is imploring Timothy to in our passage. But to do that, we need to know how to differentiate between these two forms of godliness. To think about what to do about it. Well, in verse 1 of our passage, it starts, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, and certainly... Certainly, this poses a difficulty to us, but I want to take a minute on this first verse because I think it will help us to read our Bibles better, let alone to understand this passage itself. You see, many times, uh, I think many, uh, maybe many Christians may assume that when the phrase, the last days, appears, that it must refer to the concluding months or years of all of human history. It's the last days, of course. Then they proceed to read the rest of the passage thinking, well, that, that seems like the kind of stuff that might happen near the end of the history. It seems pretty bad, and maybe it makes sense to me that bad things might happen towards the end of history. And so, so they conclude, if they see these things, then the world must be coming to an end. Well, I think this is actually working backwards. It's putting meaning into Scripture rather than bringing meaning out of Scripture. I have, from my own presumption that I got somewhere else outside of Scripture, assumed the last days must be the last days of human history, and now I have imposed that assumption on the text and then interpreted the rest of the text based on that. So we need to actually look at the text, at Scripture, and go, well, what did, what did Paul mean by the last days? First, before we can understand what it means for us today. And when we do that, what we realize is that Paul is telling Timothy what to do because Timothy is in the last days, according to Paul. That he's telling Timothy, you, Timothy, are in the last days. The future tense, he, well, and then, and then someone may object, well, but why does he say there will come times of difficulty? Isn't, isn't that future tense? But, but here... Paul is using the future tense not in chronology, not to display chronology, but to display certainty, which is a common way of expression in the Greek language. In other words, what he's saying is, this will happen. This will happen. Now, I'd like to make one clarification so that it doesn't confuse you. There is a differentiation um, in, the, in the use of the last days, plural, and the last day, singular, in the New Testament, the last day, singular, does refer to Christ's second coming and the judgment and the end of all things. But the last days does not. In fact, in case you're like, well, Cody, well, I don't understand. What, what do you mean? What is the last days then? Well, let me briefly try to explain or give a few examples, though I could give lots of examples in the text. First, we need to understand that the last days starts particularly with Jesus' incarnation. That's what the Bible presents to us. When we survey the use of latter days in the Old Testament and the last days or similar expressions in the New Testament, we see that there's an incredible consistency in their descriptions, that, that judgment will come on rebellious Israel, and Messiah comes in the last days, or in the latter days. 
We understand Jesus' first coming as massive for our souls, if you will, that, that in Jesus' first coming, this was a massive change for, for our individual souls, but we fail to recognize oftentimes how significant it was to all of history, to all of created order, to everything, to the fabric of the world that we live in, that God was divorcing Israel and forming a new covenant, changed the very fabric of the seen and unseen order. And so in the New Testament, as, ex- as an example in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, it says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. And so the writer of the Hebrews establishes that in these last days are the days in which Jesus Christ... Is, became the revelation of God to us in the flesh. So we know that last days starts with the revealing of Jesus, and we know then that it at least continues until the writing of Hebrews, which is in the early 60s, or in the late 60s AD. But, but where does it particularly end? Well, I, there's two basic options left to us. Either it's the time from Jesus' incarnation, his first coming, to his second coming, or it refers to the final days of that old covenant, which started with Christ's incarnation and the initiation of a new covenant and concluded with the final uh, destruction of the temple and the destruction of that old system. See, on the cross, God had put a death nail to the old covenant But before the temple was destroyed, it was described in the book of Hebrews as, quote, becoming obsolete. Not obsolete yet, but becoming obsolete in that time. And growing old and ready to vanish. But it hadn't vanished yet for the readers of the book of Hebrews. Nor had it vanished yet for Timothy. Well, I'm not actually going to answer the question of which of the two those are, because uh, to be honest, I needed to study it more. I'm not entirely sure. I am uh, uh, on the fence between those two. Nevertheless, for us today, if it's the first, we can expect times of difficulty, because then we are in the last days as well. But even if it's the second option, even if it's the second and and the last days are just that time in between Christ's coming and the destruction of the temple, the time in which Timothy and all of the writers of the New Testament, all the readers of the letters of Paul lived, even if it's just that time, I think we can still expect similar times to come whenever similar kinds of people are around. What kinds of people? Well, our text says those who go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And so whenever we see people going from bad to worse, whenever we see the kinds of people that I'm going to describe from this text uh, uh, multiplying, if you will, then we can expect these sorts of results, these sorts of times of difficulty for us. And I think it's relevant because I think it's true of our time in place. But I want you to understand the point. I want you to understand first the point to the original audience and only then cross over into our application for us in our current situations. Otherwise, otherwise if we jump straight to applying it to us, we end up being free-floating. We end up having no connection, actually, from the text for making our applications but only our personal conjectures and perceptions of it. And so I want us to make sure that we go, what does it mean for the original reader first, and then tie a rope, if you will, to us so that we don't float off somewhere in our own applications. So, all right, well, that's a little bit of a, uh, extra credit, how to read the Bible lesson. Now let's get into the meat of our sermon. Paul is going to describe then the situation of these last days in two sections. First in verses 1 through 9, and then in verses 10 through 7. In 1 through 9, he's going to describe those who cause the times of difficulty. And in 
10 through 17, he's going to describe how to navigate, how to endure these times, how a person like Timothy, how the man of God ought to act. And in doing that, what Paul is going to do is he's going to present a contrast. 1 to 9, he intends to contrast to 10 with 10 to 17. So one person, another preacher might slice this a little bit differently, but the way that I want to slice it today is to highlight four contrasts for you between the evil people and imposters, those who are going from bad to worse, and Timothy and the men of God and the faithful men that Timothy is to train, to look for and to train, to continue to do the ministry of God's word. And those contrasts are going to be a difference in characteristics, a difference in religions, a difference in conduct, and a difference in promises. All right. There are two sets of characteristics, and it's, this becomes really obvious in verse 2, in verse 3, in verse 4, right? We could summarize this, like, this list like this. The list begins and ends with either love of self or love of God. And I think that's important because I think what Paul is trying to say is that these People, these evil imposters that only have the appearance of godliness, that, that the, the problem is that in their hearts, they don't love God. In their hearts, they love themselves. They love their own pleasures. They love their, their money. They love their own stuff. They love themselves, essentially, rather than loving God. And from that misdirected love flows all kinds of evil things. You understand that if we love anything but God first, the only thing that will flow out of that is sin and evil. The only thing. That's why all the law is summed up in this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself, because you can't love your neighbor as yourself until you love God first. And so these people then are filled with pride and hostility to others, and that's what we see both at the beginning and the end, right inside of that, uh, those statements about love, you know, they're, they're arrogant, they're proud, they're, con- they're conceited, they're reckless. Then there's a slew of what I would call not terms. Some of them are obvious in the English translation, but some of them aren't so obvious. But you can, you can see things like uh, um, they're not obedient to right authorities. Kids, listen. He, he says in this list of things, in this list of things that, that sounds so terrible, one of, his important, one of his important characteristics that he highlights is this, disobedient to their parents. Disobedient to their parents, kids. I don't, it, I don't think we fully grasp how important to God obedience to parents is, honoring our parents. Because at, at the core of that command is a submission to rightful authority. And the true and greatest rightful authority is who? God. And so if we can't be obedient to our parents, then how can we be obedient to God? How can we be obedient to any authority, rightful authority that God places in our life? So not obedient to right authority, not grateful, not holy, not caring of others, not able to be reconciled with others, not self-controlled, not loving good. And then at the very center of this list, you have this word, slanderous, which we kind of read over like, oh, slanderous, that's not very good. Uh, but but the, the Greek word there is diablo. It, it is literally the word we translate when it's used as a proper noun into devil, the devil. Diabolo. These people, though they have an appearance of godliness, are little devils. That's what they are. We'd expect him to say this of people who look like the world, who are from the world, but you have to understand these are people with the appearance of godliness, and we know from the, pa- the passage right beforehand that he is speaking of 
those vessels in the house of God that are of honorable use and dishonorable use. These are descriptions of people who profess Christ, who have, that carry the banner Christian, who are in the church. That's what he's talking about. And that's what makes this so insidious. The characteristics of these fools are compared then to Timothy uh, and all of those who, he says in verse 12, desire to live a godly life. Those who truly desire to live a godly life, they are those who follow Paul's teaching, Paul's conduct, aim in life, faith, patience, love, steadfastness, and who even are willing to endure his persecutions and his sufferings. The bottom line is they love God more than they love themselves. And even if loving God means sacrificing their desires, their pleasures, themselves, they will love God. Not just surface actions, right? But it's a heart change because listen, we, can, we make easy sacrifices. We make easy sacrifices oftentimes just in order to look good to other people because what we really desire is them to think something of us. But when the rubber really hits the road, when it's something that you really want, when God says, no, not that, then we find out whether we love God or whether we love ourselves. That's when we find out. And as we'll see, this isn't something we produce. This ability to do this isn't something we produce because, because the, the ability to do that can only come from faith in Christ. It can only come from trusting God more than we trust ourselves. And that, my friends, is a gift of God. And so that leads us to the second uh, contrast. Not only is it characteristics, uh, but it also is a contrast of two kinds of religions. You say, well, wait, 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 wait. I thought you said these people called themselves Christians. What do you mean two kinds of religions? But what is being described is a different religion that merely uses the name Christian, that merely uses terms and uses forms that look Christian, but, it, but is actually a different religion. You see, religion, we could say, is the way in which we draw near to God. How do we draw near to God? Those are, those are the religious things, the pious things that we do. But these do certain things in terms of forms that, that look Christian, but they lack the substance. They lack the power. Well, what is, what is the power then that they are denying? Well, we find it in verse 15. Verse 15, if you'll, read, if you'll look there with me, it says, From childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And this verb, able to, you need to understand, is this, comes from the same root word as power that's used in verse 5 when it says, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. So what has, where is the power found? Well, the power is found in God's word when it is read and understood through faith in Christ Jesus. Or to put it a different way, we are guided to godly lives. We are guided to draw near to God by the scriptures, but we are empowered to godly lives through faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. It's through that faith, or particularly the object of our faith, that we are empowered. You see, forms without faith are powerless. Forms without faith are powerless. Why? Well, because no one can please God, we're told in the scriptures, merely by doing certain actions. I want you to stop, stop and just let that sink in for a second. No one can please God merely by doing certain actions. You need to understand that you cannot please God merely by doing things, even that the Bible says are righteous. That in itself will not please God. It won't. 
We should know this because we know that every action that we do are, is corrupted by sin. We know that even the best things we do, there's always that little bit of motivation that is selfish, that little bit that is for ourselves, that little bit that's prideful or arrogant, that little bit that's corrupted in some way. We know that. And so Paul says that even his best things are like filthy rags before God. So you might say, well, well then what are we even doing any of this for then? There's no, what, is there no hope? Is there no, is there no way? Well, there is a way. It's only by God's mercy that he looks on our meager, the meager efforts of his children and calls them righteous. That when we, in faith, obey his word because he says so, trusting his promises that he'll have mercy on us, he takes our meager efforts, our meager worship, our meager sacrifices, our meager, meager righteous, corrupted actions, and he says, my child, that's good enough. Thank you. I will receive that as worship to me as pleasing, as a pleasing aroma to me. And thus, everything we do to approach the Father must be through faith in Christ. It must be by the power of the Spirit, not because faith itself somehow causes God to owe us something in return, as if, well, well, God, I did it by faith, so now you must. Because faith itself is a gift from God. The power comes from the object of our faith. And so one group may call themselves Christians, may have an appearance of godliness, but the things that they do are trusting in themselves. But, but those, who, those who desire to live a godly life, what does it say in verse 12? They desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Christ is the way, the means by which. Not only the means by which, but it's, but, but it's actually sort of the, the spatial place. We are, we, Bible says we are in, that those who have faith in Christ are in Christ, that we are united with him. So the forms of religion are made powerful because God promises to do it. Why does it, why does, do we take communion? Is there power in, in eating bread and drinking from the cup in and of itself? No. But it's because God promises to do something. And we say, okay, God promised it. I trust him. Then I'll do it. And he goes, thank you. I'll receive that in my mercy as a righteous act. And he blesses us. See, the fool appears sort of godly in certain ways, but denies its power. They do religious things. They're in church. They come to serve, to service. They come to, to serve others, no doubt. They make a show of their good deeds oftentimes even. They'd love for you to know about all the good things they're doing. They hang ban banners outside of their church about how welcoming and accepting they are, but their hearts are not for God. And they say... Oh, you can be welcomed into God's family through some other means than the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. Their welcoming, their accepting, is by getting rid of God's standards rather than coming through the sacrifice of Christ into his family. They transform the definition of godliness rather than looking to God in faith. They transform the definition itself. Rather than saying, oh no, you need to look to God in faith and be transformed by him, they say, no, we'll just transform what the standard is. We'll just make it something else because they're unholy and they love pleasure. They're proud and they think they know better than God and they think they can do better than God and they're disobedient to his authority. At their heart, though, though they make a good show of it, on the surface, at their heart, they are this list of things that Paul describes. 
They make a show of their so-called love, but they're heartless, affirming in others the pleasures that others have that only hurt those who actually participate in them. And who inevitably, when they stand before the throne of God and they say, but, but, my, but, but at church I heard this was okay, and God says, but my word did not say that. And so, so-called Christian teachers like the Andy Stanleys and the Preston Sprinkles of the world and many others, they say, oh, it's okay. It's okay. It's not that big of a deal. But they undercut the gospel. They say there's a way to draw near to God that isn't through Christ. But those who desire to live a godly life do so in Christ. They desire others to do the same. And yet, and yet they're the ones who are persecuted. Isn't that strange? Did you notice that? That, that the evil people are said to deny the power. And yet it's those who are desiring to live a godly life in the passage that are persecuted. That in earthly terms, in earthly words, the one who's desiring to live a godly life is the one who seems powerless at the moment. How do we take that? True power is found in Christ. Power that, the power that does work that no human hand can touch and no human hand can affect. Do you understand that in Christ, Christ does power in you that no human hand can touch or affect. They, can, they, are, they are powerless to stop it. They're powerless to stop the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in your life. They're powerless to stop what Christ can do that when we come before God, and we name the name of Christ, God says, son, daughter. What is better than that? This, this understanding of power is reiterated when we look at the other place where Paul uses a similar phrase as denying its power. And we find that uh, actually in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, if you remember the passage, Paul said this, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith, he says and is worse than an unbeliever. And so we're given a specific example of those who appear godly. We've already been given a specific example of those who appear godly but are denying its power. Godly-looking excuses can become a guise for the love of self. Paul says, now, look, if you, if you come up with excuses not to provide for your relatives, when, when you know that ought to, you, you've denied the faith, you're worse than an unbeliever. See, see, but we need to understand that when James says, when in the book of James chapter 1, 27 says that true religion is to look after the orphan and widow, it's not merely saying because of the act itself. Any more than taking communion outside of faith in Christ it does anything, nor does taking care of the widow and the orphan outside of faith in Christ do, do, does anything for us. We have to keep ourselves unstained from the selfish pride of the world. You know what, I've, we've obviously lived at times in, in the kind of the world of evangelical adoption and orphan care. And I suspect people have adopted sometimes, or at least in part, motivated to get pats on the back, to feel better about their sin, like they're tipping the balance of good versus evil that they've done is if that's going to gain them something in the eyes of God. Or because that people said, well, that's a really noble thing that you did there. That's really great. But friends, this is trust in oneself. This is doing what ought to be righteous deeds in unrighteous ways. It's not, it's not for God, and thus it's not godly. 
And if they use it as justification to not do something else God wants them to do. Well, I I don't want to do that thing that God is calling me to do, so I'll do this thing instead because, you know, then I can kind of get that monkey off my back, my conscience for a little bit, and, and, um, you know, I can kind of feel good and people will give me pats on the back for doing this, but no one will notice me for doing that. That's just goes on, you know, flies under the, under the radar. If that is why they do it, then they're no better than the Pharisees in Mark 7 who justified their lack of care for their parents because they'd, they'd committed that money to God. I mean, committed it publicly so that everyone noticed it and plotted them for doing it, right? But secretly behind the scenes, they're not caring for their parents in the way they ought to. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about in 1 Timothy 5.8. So friends, listen, we, I'll give you some more examples. The husband who claims he's faithful to his wife because he hasn't committed adultery, but is, act, is failing to actively show her love or is looking at porn secretly. He's denying the power. It's an appearance of godliness that denies its power. The wife who claims to be submissive to her husband, but privately, when no one is around, nags him until he decides to do the thing that she wants him to do, right? And then when others say, oh, what's going on there? You say, well, you know, it was his decision. I'm just trying to follow his lead. I'm, a, I'm being a good wife. It's an appearance of godliness that denies his power. It's insidious. It's diabolical. The person who says that they have forgiven their brother in Christ, but then switches to a different service at their church to avoid having to actually reconcile that relationship in any meaningful sense, or worse yet, just leaves the church so they don't have to actually interact or come across them anymore. Because because in reality, they don't believe God can repair it. In reality, they don't believe that God can actually repair that relationship. And frankly, they have little to no love for their fellow Christians and for the bride of Christ. That is an appearance of godliness that denies its power. God, Christ, they say Christ can reconcile me to the holiest God. The God on most high. But he can't reconcile me to that person. That makes no sense, friends. It's an appearance of godliness that denies its power. All right, I'll stop giving examples. We could probably go on for a while. And listen, we all do this at times. We all do this at times. Everyone in this room, you think for just two seconds, and I bet you you can think of an example in your own life of this, and probably in the not-too-distant past. When we see it, we must learn to be quick to repent of it and turn to Christ, trusting him. Trust him. Trust him. His promises are good. He will do what he says he'll do. He does care for his children. And if you are feeling tension in your life because of something along these lines, know Hebrews 12 says that God disciplines his children that he loves. That's his discipline, not because he doesn't love you, but because good fathers discipline their kids because they love them enough to say, no, I need to redirect you to what is good. But friends, when, when this typifies someone, then our passage says that they're the that they are those who oppose the truth, corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. They've denied the faith. And so we must be on our guard against this kind of thinking, this kind of way of repeating the right terms or even the right doctrinal beliefs, even having the right confession without really trusting in the Christ that it speaks of, or doing the right things on the surface without truly having hearts that seek to be obedient and faithful to Christ, whatever he asks us to do. And so, so not only is it a difference in our, in our love, right, and, and 
a love of God or love of self that characterizes us. Not only is it a different in religion or faith, fake or true, trust in God or in our own wisdom and man's wisdom, but it also leads us to a contrast in conduct. In verses 6 and 7, we see that these evil imposters creep into households and capture weak women. Weak women... Listen, weak women is not a derogatory term for all women. That's not what's meant here. I just want to clarify that in case you were like, wait a second, that's not... Hey, we got four, five bars. Sorry. I should have checked that before service. All right. As I was saying, weak women isn't meant to be a derogatory term for all women, but it's a description of a kind of woman. A kind of, of woman that is targeted by these evil men. And I want you to notice that he does specifically and uniquely describe them as women. He doesn't say weak people. He could have said weak people. In fact, very often he just uses the term man for, for men and women. But here he, takes, he, he actually specifies women, and I think we ought to pay attention to that. I know this is not popular in our world today to say things like this, but, but it is in the text and so we need to actually take the text for what the text is saying, and it specifies women for a reason. Therefore, we ought not to be ignorant that women tend to be more susceptible to this kind of false teaching and tend to be the target of it. Men, you are in your wife's life to protect her from this, to sanctify her, to look out for her, to guard her. Women, your husband is in your life for that reason. And, and if he is seeking to follow God and he's in God's word, praise God, thank the Lord for that, and listen to him. He might get it wrong sometimes. Listen, listen, you might be right and he might be wrong. That happened once in my marriage, I think. I'm just joking. That's a joke. That's a joke. <laughs> But do you trust God? Do you trust God in the way he's ordered things? But I also want you to pay attention to the fact that it is not all women. He doesn't say all women. He says weak women. And so women, I want you to understand, you don't have to be weak in this way. You don't have to be weak in this way. And why are they weak? Well, he says, they're burdened with sins and led by passions. And I, don't, I think these two things are often connected. When we're burdened by sins, sometimes, sometimes we're just, we don't know what to do with that. And we, we end up, instead of running to Christ, we end up running to our passions to try to medicate that pain, right? To, to find anything that we can do to just ease our conscience a little bit. Their consciences are heavy with their past sin and their lives are controlled by whatever they are wanting in that moment. Please, just, just give me something that will take this away. And so when someone stands up and someone says, hey, that's not actually sin. Don't sweat it. Or that's not actually that bad. They go, oh, but the problem is, it doesn't fix the problem. That when they stand before the Lord, they they will not be reconciled to him unless it's through Jesus Christ. That the only way that there can be no condemnation for us is Jesus Christ. That the only way that our consciences can actually be cleansed is through Jesus Christ and his blood. That's the only way. Now we can sear our consciences and we can try to bury it down deep and we can try to pretend that it doesn't exist, but it does not go away. It does not go away. 
The only way that our sin is taken from us as far as the east is from the west is through the cross of Jesus Christ. By repenting of our sins, turning to him in faith, and and laying everything, uh, submitting everything to him and saying, no, you have taken care of this, God. But that takes humility. You know what else that takes? That takes admitting that our sin is actually that sinful. And that's tough to do. It's easier to try to pretend it ain't as bad as it really is. I tell you where we see this probably the most, where we see this most right now in our day, I think, is with abortion. With pastors who are unwilling to just say abortion is murder. And the reason that's often given to me is because that's not nice to the women who who have aborted their, ch- their, their children, their sons and their daughters. You're telling them they're a murderer. But when we soften the language in order to make them feel better, what are we doing? We're saying there's a way to deal with your sin that isn't through Jesus Christ. We're saying, well, Jesus will forgive those sins, but he doesn't forgive murder, so we better not say it's murder. But Paul is a murderer. And Peter, when he stood in Acts 2 and he preached that first sermon at Pentecost, what did he say? You murdered Jesus. And they said, oh, what do we do? He says, repent, be baptized in the name of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. He, doesn't, he didn't say, hey, let me soften that a little bit for you. Hey, you did a bad thing. It was probably wrong. Someone died because of it, but it wasn't murder. No, that's not what he said. And pastors need to get a backbone and start actually saying that because people are dying, women are dying and going to hell, thinking that it's not the big of a deal, instead of turning to Christ for forgiveness. Instead of finding the transforming power of Jesus Christ that doesn't just bury that sin down deep somewhere in the recesses of their memory, but actually frees their conscience from what they've done. That they can actually go, that was, that was horrible, and I wish I hadn't done it, and I regret it with all of my life, but Christ has forgiven me, and one day because of him, I will be with that child in heaven. That's what Christ can do. All right, I'm off track, sorry. It just, it, it frustrates me. It frustrates me because, because it, we baptize these kinds of things and we try to make them look good and we try to make them look nice, but, but it's not, it's evil. It's evil because it turns people's attention away from the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and what he can and does do. And so listen, whatever your sin is, you go, well, Well, I've not murdered anyone. Well, great, if that's true, awesome. But whatever your sin is, no, Christ can forgive it and your conscience can be cleared in him because of his blood, because of what he has done. Stop burying it down deep, the regret, the pain, the whatever it is, and turn those things over to Christ. Call it what it is. He'll take care of it. He promises to do it. I don't even know where I am in my sermon right now. So the trick of the false teachers is to use use these methods to keep people always learning but never arriving. To keep us in a continual stream of did God really say sorts of doubts rather than what verse 14 says to continue in what you have learned and have and have firmly believed rather than coming to a knowledge of the truth. And friends, listen, in Christ, you can come to the knowledge of the truth that you really are forgiven of your sins. And so they're like Janice and Jambres now. I want to get in this sidetrack of Janice and Jambres. They're thought to be the, the, the names of Pharaoh's magicians, right? Remember, you remember uh, Moses would do things and then the magicians would do the thing, you know, and there's, oh, a staff turned into a snake. Oh, my staff turned into a snake and then my snake ate your snake. That's what God's up to. 
And so, and so we can look at some people and we can go, well, but, 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 but look, it has the appearance of power, just as Janice and Jambres had the appearance of power. But he says that they won't get very far, that their folly will, will become evident, that, that God's snake eats their snake. So let's, let's follow God instead. Timothy says to avoid these people. Don't. Now, now, this isn't to take anything away from what we learned last week in terms of the command to patiently teach opponents with gentleness. But what I think he means by avoid such people is, is don't give these people airtime. Don't promote them. Don't put them on a, up uh, in the pulpit, if you will. Don't, don't support these false teachers. Train up faithful men instead and, and, then, and then try to seek to, to call these people to repentance. But will it work? That's the final question. Well, there's two promises in the text. Two promises I want to bring to your attention. The first promise relates to those who follow the folly of fake godliness. That's a mouthful. Verse 9, it says this, They will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all. As I said, the snake gets swallowed by God's snake, and all the firstborn perish. And this is a major promise to those who are being persecuted for faithfulness and for desiring to live a godly life, right? Sometimes in the moment, sometimes in the moment it feels like this isn't working. But I want you to understand to persevere in it. Persevere in it. Because the folly of that sinfulness will become apparent to people. It will become apparent to all God's people that he's elect for salvation. And sometimes I've heard, you know, back to the abortion thing, I heard someone say, well, we shouldn't make such a big deal about this abortion thing. We should just tell them the gospel instead. And I want to say, like, well, what is the gospel then? Is it to follow God, to walk humbly, to do justice, to do righteousness? Is that the result of the gospel or is the result of the gospel something else? What's, What's the gospel then? Is it to call those people to repentance for their sin there or, or is it to... Pretend that that sin didn't happen. What's the, what is it then that we're doing? That folly will become plain to all. We think, well, well, that sounds not nice, and so we shouldn't say it, but there's always that other person that's standing there who's waiting to see how the Christian is going to respond. And if that Christian is going to actually call something that's terrible, terrible, And if we don't call something that's terrible, terrible, then that person is going to go, well, I don't want their God. Their God doesn't even know what's plainly unjust. And we're so concerned about the person whose conscience is seared, who's already rejected God, and being nice to that person, that we fail the person standing there, who's waiting to see how we're going to respond, whom God is actually moving towards him already. His Spirit's already working. We fail it because we're unwilling to speak the truth. So in those moments, I want you to remember, Pharaoh fails, God's people are freed. Rome falls, Christianity spreads. There are times of difficulty, but God triumphs every time. That's what I want you to remember. And it may not be in that present moment for you, it may not even be in your life, but he will triumph. The second promise is related directly to those who pursue the wisdom of true godliness. And it's a twofold promise. First, in verse 11, it says that God rescues Paul. He rescued him from persecution in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, to name a few. And that doesn't mean, like I said, that Paul didn't suffer. He did. It doesn't mean that eventually Paul isn't imprisoned and put to death because he is. He's writing this from that prison cell. It does mean that God kept him from folding in the face of persecution and that so long as God had work for him to do on earth, God kept him here to do it. And friends, that's, that's a promise you can take to the bank. You don't have to worry about sustaining yourself in the Lord. 
Our focus is to look to Jesus and continue in what we learned, trusting that Christ sustains us. Second part of the promises in verse 17, if we continue in the scriptures, by faith, it says, in Christ, then we will be equipped for every good work, it says. We'll be equipped for every good work, meaning we'll be complete that that whatever is needed, whatever we need for the thing that God puts in front of us, he will have given to us. Do you understand that? That's the promise. If you continue in God's word, then whatever you need for whatever God puts in front of you, he has given you. You think you don't have it. I get it. I feel that way all the time. But trust God's promise, not your own ability, not your own knowledge, not your own skill, not your own talent. Trust him. I'll speak specifically to men, to fathers and husbands, because it does say man of God here. Listen, it feels like you don't have what it takes all the time. I know that. I feel that. In reality, you don't have what it takes on your own. What our world tells us even the Christian world oftentimes, is that if we want to avoid being domineering and manipulative weasels, then we need to be so passive that we can't do anything about the weasels. But there's another way. The man of God can be complete and equipped. And it starts with faith in Christ instead of our own power. And as we continue to, to turn to God's word, applying it to our lives by faith, always by faith in Christ, God says he can give us what we need for where he has put us. And that includes in your marriage, and that includes in your family, and that is includes with your children, and that includes in your job, that includes everywhere. This is not a possibility with God. This is a promise from God. So what do we do then? When we find fake godliness in our lives, either teaching that we realize is not continuing the scriptures or conduct in our life that is loving of ourself or pleasure or some other thing. Well, C.S. Lewis has some wise advice for us. He says this, he says, we all want progress, but progress means getting near to the place where we want to be. And if you have taken a wrong turning, then to go forward does not get you any near. If you are on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn, walking back to the right road. Going back, then, is the quickest way on. Well, after graduation, I kept reading and moving forward in that theological stream that was introduced to me, uh, it's p- particularly in, in what is called process theology or open theism, that God doesn't, doesn't so much know the future, but knows all possible futures and guides that. And it struck a chord with me as a way to explain evil and suffering. It, it, there was something in me that said, well, I need to get God off the hook here for evil, as if he needs to be me to get him off the hook, right? He's so foolish. But it itched my ears, as we'll find out in the passage next week. But then as I continued in it, what I realized is that the God that was being put forth seemed to align with with many aspects of my human thinking and feeling, but less and less with what I was reading in Scripture. That the God that I was being led to by this way of thinking was really just a good version of me. A really big and good version of me. And in essence, I was just worshiping myself. This God was certainly not sovereign like Scripture said. So how could I trust Him to be in control of all things, let alone my eternity? And this God was changeable, not immutable, like Scripture said. So how could I trust Him that He wouldn't change His mind about His love for me? It seemed like an answer on the surface to the problem of evil and suffering, but I had no longer had an answer to the problem of my own heart. I was treating a God that can justify for a God that I could justify.
But God in his mercy saved me from that error. And he saved me because I continued in his word that makes us wise to salvation. And his word revealed the truth to me by the power of the Spirit. And so you know what I do? I keep that book on my shelf. I keep that book on my shelf right behind my desk. And it reminds me how close I was in my own power. And how dependent I am, no matter how much I learn, how dependent I am on Christ and his spirit. And that he will keep me to the end. So if you've been an imposter, do an about turn, confess it, bring it into the light. If you've been deceived, do an about turn, admit your mistake, humble yourself, look to the word for answers. If you've been passive, do an about turn, humbly ask others to teach, reproof, correct, and train you by his word. If you've been persecuted for desiring to live a godly life, friends, keep on the right road. Humble yourself under the hand of God, trusting that he will do what he has promised to do. Let's pray.